Welcome to Voices of Experience, the National Speakers Association's audio magazine. I'm Camille Valvo, and it's great to be back with you. It's May, the fifth month, or as my dictionary says, the early flourishing part of life. It also states the word may can be used to express possibility, as in you may enjoy this month's lineup, or to express opportunity or permission. You may now tune in. And finally, it can be used to express a wish or a prayer. You may hopefully use all the great content you're just about to hear. So with that, you may want to help me welcome Dr. Joe Somerville, who finds out in his interview, the next great thing isn't so great. I am joined by David Newman, marketing expert of Unconsulting for the Real Deal on Marketing Yourself and Your Small Business. I've noticed on your email signatures, you ask a very interesting question. You say, can too much marketing be killing your business? And that's kind of an unconventional thought to start with. But let's start there and I'll ask you to answer the question. Can too much marketing kill your business? Well, I think it can, especially as speakers and entrepreneurs were very tempted to do the latest and greatest marketing fad of the month, fad of the week. And what I found is that really effective marketing is not hard. It's just hard work. Choosing a small, finite set of marketing activities that you're willing to commit to consistently is much more effective than going for this internet marketing plan and then trying something that just came across your desk that worked really well for somebody else. Or we just have this, sometimes marketing becomes marketing for the sake of marketing instead of marketing for the sake of growing your business. So perhaps the speaker who, without any real clear plan in mind, starts one month with a direct postcard or a direct mailing of some kind, then finds out a little bit about social networks and takes a dip in that pond, and then the next month finds out about a new technology that's coming out. It sounds like what you're saying is people that market too much market in too fragmented an approach. Is that right? Exactly right. Well, and then what's interesting is, you know, as you say, let's say one month they try a postcard, and they mail out their postcard, they get no response after one postcard, and they throw up their hands and say, oh, postcard marketing doesn't work. And then they try podcasting and they put together one or two podcasts, put that out there on iTunes. They don't get response. They don't get any incoming leads. They don't get any sales after two attempts. They go, oh, podcasting doesn't work. And it's this what I call marketing ADD, uh, which is simply marketing attention deficit disorder or sometimes advertising deficit disorder that we, we always think the next great thing is going to to work and it's going to work fast it's going to work quick and it's going to really change our business and what i found is there's no magic pill there's no magic bullet it's a consistent series of small steps that you do over time with a target market with a target message that's what's going to get through and it's not the helter-skelter approach, Joe, like you were just talking about. Let's focus on some of those different activities for a moment. What do you think are some marketing myths that don't serve speakers well? Well, I think one marketing myth that's out there is around labeling. And a lot of speakers work very, very hard to escape being labeled or to escape being put into a box 
by meeting planners, by conference producers, by corporate clients. And the actual truth is what meeting planners buy and, and what corporate buyers buy is a label. So if they go to your website and within two seconds they see that you're a sales expert, a negotiating expert, a leadership expert, you've written books on leadership, you have a leadership podcast, you have published articles in some of the the main leadership-oriented publications, then they know, hey, you know what? I'm in the right place, and this is probably the right guy or gal. I'm going to look at their video. I'm going to download their one sheet. I'm going to pick up the phone and call them. If we work so hard to come up with clever, unique, different, catchy names, and we disguise what we do, and we bury what we do behind all sorts of proprietary, clever names and and brands and sub-brands, it just confuses people. So as much as a a powerful brand is important, uh, I think a simple brand and a, a simple marketing message and a simple buyer's message is the key to getting booked more often and and booked with the right sorts of engagements. You know, there's always a great debate within NSA about whether it's better to be a generalist or whether you should have a niche market. And it sounds clearly like you're coming down on the side of the niche market. Well, I am. And it's simply because I'm a big believer in making things easy. And if you have a niche and if you've declared And we'll also talk in a minute about different kinds of niches. But in a niche, it's much easier to enhance your visibility, your credibility. It's easier to sell products. It's easier to get known. A lot of folks also misunderstand when we talk about niche marketing, Joe, where we talk about declaring a niche. They think that means declaring a topic. And it goes a lot further than that. What I'd like to do is spend maybe a minute talking about the different ways that as speakers – we can niche ourselves. Certainly one way we can niche ourselves is by topic. So sales is a niche topic. Leadership is a niche topic. Health and wellness is a niche topic. But you can also niche your speaking business by audience. So for example, if you speak only to HR people, if you speak only to finance people, if you speak only to IT people, that's another layer to your niche And it makes it more focused. It makes it more powerful. You can also niche yourself by industry. For example, if in your corporate life, if you used to work in corporate America and you came out of banking, perhaps banking would be a great niche for you. If you came out of construction, maybe you want to focus on the construction industry. If you came out of healthcare, maybe you want to go back as the healthcare expert and you can niche that way. You can niche yourself by level. You can say, I only speak to senior executives. I only speak to CEOs. On the other end of the spectrum, you can say, you know what? I only speak to high school students. And then somewhere in the middle, you might say, okay, well, I only speak to first-time supervisors or new leaders inside organizations. Another way to niche, you can niche by method. Let's say that your method, which is a proven, tested, fabulous method, you have the three-day boot camp in your topic or in your industry, or you have the 12-week coaching program in your topic expertise. And then finally, you can also niche by media. Perhaps you're known for having written the book in your industry or in your topic. Perhaps you're known for having the video that you have to go up onto YouTube and have a look at. Maybe you have to have the e-zine, or maybe you you write the the must-read blog for people that are serious about your topic or your industry. 
So there's lots of ways to niche, but the important thing is that we do it. So I take it that you could use any of those methods that you just mentioned to find a niche, but you could also combine them so they could either be used singly or in combination. Absolutely. And, and those are always the most powerful sorts of niches and those are the most sought after and usually the highest paid experts that they've really carved out a very narrow laser focused slice of the industry. Let me give you a quick example. Let's go down the path of a sales speaker. If you say, you know what, I am all about sales. I am sales all day long, night and day, 24-7. I'm the guy for sales. You're already 80% above all the other competition. The speakers who are sales and leadership and customer service and team building and time management and, and, and. Now, let's go to your point. Let's niche that even further. Let's say you're a sales prospecting speaker and you focus on the beginning part, the lead generation part or the prospecting part of the sales process. Now, that's a two-layer niche. If we can go further, let's say you're a sales prospecting using the telephone speaker. So if your company has salespeople, if your company has telephones and those salespeople use those phones for prospecting, this is your guy. And now our friend Art Subcheck, for example, is, is a great example of someone who's in that particular niche, and that's a three-layer niche. We can even go further than that. Let's say you're a sales prospecting using the phone speaker in the financial services industry. So if you're a bank, if you're a brokerage house, if you sell stocks, bonds, mutual funds, any sort of financial services, that is now a four-layer niche. And that person, that speaker, that expert, that guru is going to have the highest visibility, the highest credibility, probably the highest demand, and certainly can justify the highest fees for being that sort of brain surgeon, very deep, very expert uh, resource. I think a lot of speakers are reluctant to choose a niche because they think that they are cutting out a lot of their potential market. But you're making it sound as if the more narrowly you can niche, the bigger your market actually becomes because you're wiping out a lot of the people in terms of competition who would normally maybe be another choice for people. Well, that's exactly right. And not only that, but I think, Joe, when you when you carve out such a narrow niche, you then have instead of worrying about leaving business on the table with breadth or with having a wide variety of topics and a wide variety of target markets, you can now start to be more creative and go deep and start offering in-depth programs for this topic expertise, for this industry, for this niche market. You can now figure out what are some of the buyer's real problems, real challenges. Do they need coaching around this topic? Do they need special products that don't exist? You know, do you need to be the guy or the gal that creates those special products for that niche? So it can increase your product sales, it can increase your consulting income, it can increase your coaching income, as well as increase your speaking income. So you really do get to go broad instead of go deep. In your experience, David, are there certain must-do marketing activities for speakers? Are there some things that no matter whether you're a generalist or you have a very narrow market, that some activities simply seem to produce better results. 
Well, they do, and I'm going to give you two generic answers to that, Joe, because obviously everyone's particular situation is different. I think one must-do marketing activity is to offer value. Offer value first. Uh, There are so many speakers and experts that say, well, I I don't want to give away my stuff. My stuff, you know, I I get paid to speak about my stuff, and I get paid to publish my stuff. And if I were to give that away, that would water down my message, that would water down the demand for my products and services. And actually, it's 180 degrees opposite. The more that you give away, the more people want to come to you for the expertise, for the speeches, for the products, for the consulting, for the coaching. So whatever that means in your world, Uh, I think it's very important to give value first and give value freely. Uh, The second thing I would say is must-do marketing is you have to find marketing activities that are easy, effortless, and enjoyable. And I know there's a big uh, rift within NSA, for example, about cold calling versus not cold calling. And, and any other marketing activity, and there's dozens or hundreds of examples that we could think of, the key is, do you enjoy it? If you enjoy it, you'll do it. If you don't enjoy it, you will not do it. And it's not a question of doing it well or not doing it well. It's a question of, will you wake up every morning and do it day in, day out, rain or shine, happy or sad, good day or bad day, will you commit to doing that marketing activity? And if it's something where you're saying, ah, well, if I have a good day, I'll make some calls. If I don't feel like it, I'm not gonna make some calls or send out my email newsletter, or go to this networking event, or do a teleseminar for a partner uh, company, or do anything. So the, the second key, I think, is to really focus in on marketing activities that you enjoy and that to you seem easy. And we all have a different formula for that, but if they're not easy, effortless, and enjoyable, they also won't be effective. And that's been David Newman with The Real Deal on marketing your small business and yourself. Thank you, David. Hey, it's Randy Pennington. I'm back with a question. Are you looking for tools to take you from a good year to a great career? Then don't miss the 2009 Foundation Seminar with CSPs and CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame members Nito Cobain, Lisa Ford, and Mark Sanborn. Mark the date, Saturday, July 18th from 9 a.m. to noon at the 2009 NSA Convention. Purchase your tickets at mynsa.org. Seeds of Success producer Dolores Presley's got a lot of soul. You could even call her a soul sister. But this month's soul comes with a side of soup. SOS, Seeds of Success. This is your segment host, Dolores Presley. And I tell you, people are spreading seeds of success all over this world. And I have someone here today with me who has planted so many seeds over this world. I mean, from starting as a high school teacher to helping a classroom of students and now helping millions and millions of people worldwide. And that's none other than the success man himself, Mr. Jack Canfield. Welcome, Jack. Uh, My pleasure to be with you, Doris. Tell me about your product-producing journey. Give our listeners an idea of how they can use products in their speaking business to help them. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I was very reluctant to sell products, and they even have products in the back of the room. When I first started teaching, I was so 
concerned that people would think I was only there for the money. And it's fine to be there for the money if that's what motivates you, but I was really motivated to make a difference in the lives of people. And I was afraid they'd think I was just, you know, trying to rip them off or something. And that was my stupidity because what I realized over the years was that, you know, when you go out and give a speech, I call that the titillation phase. You get people excited about something. They get, they get turned on to a possibility. But if they're only there for an hour, they need something to take home with them to really go deeper. And um, so first it was a book that I did for teachers. Then I did a book for the general public. Um, and then Mark and I did the chicken soup books. But I think... You know, the books like The Success Principles, The Power of Focus, uh, Dare to Win, books like that that are more specific empowerment books. I mean, my life purpose is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in a, in a context of love and joy. So the Chicken Soup books inspire people to be more loving, to realize they can overcome any obstacle, they can achieve any dream, they can create relationships that work no matter what. And, but, but it's nice to be inspired, but without tools, you know, you're, you're just left frustrated. So that's why so much of my work and, and all the CD programs, et cetera, we can talk about are specific how-to programs. And I realized early on that, you know, once people got inspired, you had to give them the tools. So in the back of the room, I would have, you know, books for educators on self-esteem. I had a curriculum guide, which had 115 activities in it that we sold for $35. And I would go to a state education conference, and I would sell, you know, 500 of those. You know, I had a goal to sell a million of them before I retired, and we achieved that. And uh, we're now working on putting that curriculum guide online for free as a way of giving back, you know, to the, you know, education's underfunded right now. Teachers don't have a lot of money. So we're getting that up on our website for free. I'm at a place in my life where I've made so much money, I'm really wanting to just, you know, give right now. But the other thing was that, you know, I started working on self-esteem, and I realized teachers can't teach self-esteem unless they have it themselves. In other words, no one wants to teach someone yes. how to fish if they don't love fishing. So I realized I had to create a program for their own self-esteem, and that was my first album. It was, uh, I have to say, mediocre at best, but it, it got me in the game. And I remember thinking, you know, I, I'm not the dynamic. Now, what would you say to a person who that's up speaking, and they have some problem with not really doing well with back-of-the-room sales? Can you give us some advice on how to sell? Well, my point of view is you've got to be real careful, but you have to be strategic. In other words, speakers today get feedback all the time from meeting planners. I don't want your speech to be just a, a one-hour sales talk for your back-of-the-room product, and yes. I agree that's not what we should be doing. However... When you say things in your talk, like you're teaching a technique, and you can say, I just got a letter yesterday from Marsha uh, in Texas who, you know, I taught this technique in a seminar, and she bought my program and took it home and used it. And let me, let me show you what, what, what she shared about the, the mirror exercise or this goal-setting process or whatever. So now people know that you have product. I will often illustrate something. Uh, there was a technique I learned once to hold up a $100 bill and say, who wants this? And, you know, people all raise their hand and wave. I just keep holding it there until someone comes out of the audience and takes it. And I say, that is one of the principles of success. You have to take action. I held this up here for a minute. Only one person got off their butt and did anything, and that's the person that now has it in their hands. People that get off their butt and take action are the people that end up with the results. Well, when I started selling product, I would hold up a package or I would hold up one of my CD programs or whatever. And I would say, and I would describe it. I'd say, here's a program that's worth $79. I'm going to give this away for free in just a second. And what it contains is da 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 da. That's why it's so valuable, etc. And uh, then I hold it up and I say, "Okay, who wants it?" And then making the same point that you got to get off your butt and do it. Well, if you do that right before a break, 
then everybody goes, oh, I want that. See, now all of a sudden there's this thing that somebody has that they don't have. So you can build in things like that along the way. When I do chicken soup stories, if I tell a story from a chicken soup book, I will put up a cover of that book and then the person of the name of the story I'm telling underneath the cover of the book. So I'm constantly putting into their mind, this is a book, this story is in a book, this book is for sale, you could get this for yourself. But I'm not saying those words, it's all very subliminal. The other thing I think is um, something that Jeffrey Gittimer says, people hate to be sold, they love to buy. Basically, if you tell people what you have, how it's going to be of benefit for them, and what they're going to get as a result of it, it's really good. And I think that one of the things I learned from James Mountaincheck is, forget the exact wording he uses, but he talks about just a few degrees of changing your angle. You know, right now, if I change my direction two degrees, and I'm walking 10 feet from now, I won't be that much further off from my path. But if I go two degrees off for a year, I'm going to be way different destination than where I would have been in if I just walked straight. So if you were to buy these materials and take them home, you know, they're not going to radically change your life overnight. Anyone that promises you that's probably lying to you. But what I can guarantee you is if you'll study these materials for just uh, 20 minutes a day, that's all I ask of you, you will literally re-vector your life by as much as 5 to 10 degrees. A year from now, you'll, instead of arriving in San Francisco, you're going to arrive in Portland, Oregon. That's a very different destination. So I talk to people a lot about what's the value of having this in their life. And I usually read a letter that I've received from somebody that we get about 20 emails a day of people saying, your book changed my life, your seminar changed my life. So it depends on what I'm selling. I sell books. I sell CD programs. I sell full packages. I found that when you say, if you just have one package, let's say it costs $277, um, people will buy it because that's the only option. And usually I put things together that I know all go together and make a really good program for that specific audience to purchase. We also sell seminars uh, in the back of the room. You know, I'll be speaking upcoming this Saturday to 400 people at a public seminar that I'm putting on, and we will probably enroll 20 to 30 people of the 400 into our seven-day training in the summer to cost $3,500. So that old funnel system of, you know, get them into the room for not a lot of money, upsell them to a program they can get value from, and then upsell them to something that's more expensive and finally into our Platinum Mastermind group that costs 17000 a year. Last year I had uh, 70 people in that program. So the idea is make sure that you're giving them value and that every level of what they get, you're exceeding their expectations so they'll come back for more. I love that, exceeding their expectations, give people even more than they yeah, have. Yeah, and do a great talk. You know, you yes. want to do such a great talk that people want more. So if you give a great talk, people will want your product. But if you're constantly saying, well, I, can't, I don't have time to cover that, that's in my program, <laughs> people feel set up when you do that. Yes. Now, what product are you most proud of that you've produced, Jack? I would say I'm probably most proud of the Success Principles book, the audio version of that book that, that the same publisher published, and the program Maximum Confidence, which I did with my opponent which has some wonderful features in it, in addition to the five hours of fabulous information. And it really is just thick with information and practical stuff that you can start doing. The other piece of it is that we, at the back end of it, put a tape called a TriSync integration. Now it's a CD, TriSync integration. And it's three voices, one in your right ear, one in your left ear, and one in front of you. And I worked with the neuro-linguistic programming specialist, Tim Peering, who we scripted this so that you're actually being programmed, but programmed in a positive way, things that you want to be programmed for, losing weight and eating healthy and taking action and you know, having self-confidence and so forth. 
and it's all structured so that whatever voice you're listening to, because you only listen to one at a time, it's the other two voices that you're not listening to that are going directly into your unconscious without you resisting them. So it's a very, very powerful technology, and, and I just love the, the fact that it works, and we just get tremendous feedback from people that it's changed their lives. That is so exciting. Now, if somebody's not like Nightingale and so forth, they're not knocking on the speaker's doors with their products. Do you say that they self-publish and get the products out on their own, or oh, how yeah. do they get the attention of Absolutely. I self-published my first three albums, and I did one that was just me, the key to success. I mentioned the self-esteem, the key to success. I did one, and this is an easy thing for speakers to do. Just record one of your talks. It's very easy now with today's technology. Put a wireless mic on, you can have a little digital recorder, and get five other people in some kind of similar vein, like my first multi-author album, you might call it, was uh, with five other educators. So I had one person talking about responsibility in the classroom, one person talking about values in the classroom. I was talking about self-esteem in the classroom. Someone else was talking about accelerated learning. So these were all interconnected. So here's an album, and I could say I'm on here and five of the world's experts on these topics, and every teacher wanted that classroom discipline and so forth. You could do it. You could have six self-esteem experts, six sales experts, six experts on relationships, whatever. So you've only got to do one. Now, everyone gets to buy it at whatever the production costs are, which is usually about 8 bucks, and then they just sell it. And the nice thing is, in the album, you have everyone's contact information. So if I'm out there doing something on sales, you know, I might be selling uh, Tom Hopkins and Jeffrey Gittimer uh, would be in the album, and, and I speak, but they get exposure to this new audience who might then hire them to come in and, and vice versa for when they're speaking for me. And eventually, you know, every album I produced, I would send off to Nightingale Conant and Career Track and let them know what I was doing so that, you know, if it was a topic that they might be interested in, then they would know that I could do it. You took action and sent your materials to them. That's, we, we must act. You cannot sit back and wait to be discovered anymore. It just doesn't happen. There's three aspects I call it visibility, credibility, profitability. You have to first become visible. So, you know, if no one's ever heard of you, you're not giving out a business card, you're not giving out free CDs and demo tapes and having a website and, you know, doing affiliate mailings, no one knows you exist. But then you have to provide real, credible value. So that's where you build credibility. And it's only then that you get profitability. So you have to be willing to invest. And, you know, when I started out, I didn't have a lot of money. But you invest what you, what you have. You start with what you have. Maybe you only start with a one sheet, and then you go from there. If you're talking to a colleague, let's say your actual colleague, Mark Victor Hansen, what advice would you give him if he came in and just said, Jack, i got to take this business to the next level? I think if you're going to take your business to the next level, you have to first define what does the next level mean to you. Does it mean you want to have a national profile, so you maybe you want to get on more talk shows? Does it mean you want to have an Internet presence? beyond anything you've gotten, so you might need to work with some internet marketing. I just heard that Tony Robbins uh, hired someone for a million dollars to get him on the internet in a new way, you know, with just tons of downloadable things that are going out uh, on YouTube and so on and so forth. So you just have to define what that looks like for you and then ask yourself the question. I always ask myself the question, who's already achieved what I want? So when I wanted to have a really good album, I looked at Dennis Whateley because he was the, the number one Langell Koenig guy. Today I'd be Brian Tracy. And I would call them up and say, can I buy you lunch? Can I, you know, just bend your ear for 30 minutes? And I've never had anyone say no to me, from Brian Tracy to Ken Blanchard to uh, Tom Hopkins, you name it. They've always been gracious to me. And I think they are to most people if you, if you reach out and ask. So I would find out how they did it, and then I would say, okay, there's a blueprint there. Let's use it. And you can change it a little bit. 
you're going where no one's ever gone before, then I would look in allied fields. You know, when we were trying to get chicken soup for the soul to go to the next level, uh, we talked to a guy who worked with Harry and David Catalog, and he said, the problem with your books is you've got to make 43 million sales a year to reach your goal of a billion books by 2020. That's 43 million yes decisions that have to be negotiated. If you had a book club like Harry and David's Fruit of the Month Club, you'd only have to make one sale for, for selling 12 books. And if they stayed with you for five years, you'd sell 60 books making one sale. So it, we had a new model from a different allied profession that could help our book sales. And we never would have found it in speaking or in books because no one had ever done that before. But so you look in allied fields where people are successful and say, could I apply that model to my speaking business or to my product business? Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. You heard it right here on VOE. Thank you, Jack, so much for not saying no. You always say yes when I call you, and I thank you. You're welcome, Dolores, and uh, my regards to everyone in NSA. Have you noticed that certified speaking professional and national president Sam Silverstein is always talking about pie? Growing the pie, sharing the pie... You know, maybe that's a surprise for the summer conference in Phoenix. Gee, I hope he knows my favorite, strawberry pie with loads of... I was on the phone a few weeks back with a speaker friend. He asked me how business was, and I commented that the last eight calls I had received were for dates that I was already out of the country on behalf of NSA. I was not complaining, just stating the facts. The conversation went on, and that was that. Or so I thought. A couple of days later, I received a few emails from him. They were emails of introduction to a few of his clients that he had spoken for recently and knew that he couldn't go back this coming year. Wow, I did not expect that. A few days passed, and then I looked into my database and found a few clients that would be an excellent fit for my friend. He didn't ask for them. But then I hadn't asked either. It's not uncommon for a member of NSA to recommend another NSA speaker when we're not available for a speech. But what I think is an even more exciting option is to actually open up our database and find a client that would be a great fit for one of our friends. It's more proactive. It's a great way to fight a down economy. And it's a wonderful example of our founder, Cavett Roberts' dream of working together to build a bigger pie. Just think, if 3,600 members each paired up one of their clients with another speaker, how much business would that represent? Find a client today that you can refer to a friend. Maybe connect an NSA member with a producer of a radio program you were interviewed on. Look to give something without being asked or even expected. I bet you'll be amazed at how you feel. I'll bet you'll be amazed at how it benefits a fellow NSA member. And who knows, maybe down the line, you might be receiving one of those introduction emails and pick up a new client yourself. Have a great month and keep it real. This has been a year of many firsts for NSA. In this edition of Voices of Experience, we'd like to highlight NSA's first ever summit event, created exclusively for CSPs and CPAEs. Over 65 CSPs and CPAEs will gather in Minneapolis, Minnesota on May 1st through May 3rd to discuss ideas and issues relevant to their businesses. A big thank you goes out to our CSP CPAE Summit sponsors, Greenleaf Book Group and Vistage International. If you have ever wondered about earning your CSP, here is another incentive to do so. 
Call NSA headquarters today to get more information on earning your CSP. This month, we took the healthy out of healthy, wealthy, and wise. Segment producer Marie Ferrugia's interviewee was energy personified, a speaker and author with 26-plus years in the fitness industry. Listen up. Hi, this is Marie Ferrugia, and today I'm with Rowena Cesaran-McAvoy. Rowena is a financially independent businesswoman and the owner of four private, prestigious, and exclusive international fitness business colleges. Here in Australia, her role in her business is now purely team leadership. However, she was the head lecturer in both the business and fitness programs. Rowena has a 26-year career in the fitness industry, which includes club management, instructor training, international conference presentations, a very successful personal training business, and now the serious business of fitness education. Rowena, thanks for joining us. My absolute pleasure. Now, I believe one of your strengths is that you've successfully mastered being mentally or attitudinally healthy. What's your secret? I reckon I would be the most attitudinally healthy person on the planet. (laughs) And there's absolutely no secret whatsoever. Uh, It's an action plan. Mm -hmm. I jump out of bed every morning and I have a word for each day. So it's magical day, terrific day, wow day, thankful day, fun day, super day and sparkle day. And I look in the mirror and I say, happy sparkle day to you, special lady. (laughs) Um, Believing that if you believe in yourself, then everything after that's easy. Um, I then exercise really hard every morning, so I fight with my treadmill till I'm puffed and hot and sweaty. Um, I drink a large amount of water and a very large glass of fruit juice, and then I feel like I can start the day. So it's a very systemized plan every single day to be attitudinally healthy. (laughs) (laughs) And interesting, obviously, what you eat and what you do physically with your body affects your attitude, yes? Has everything to do, yeah. I'm a firm believer that you can't change the way you think. I believe if you take good action, that will automatically change the way you think. So rather than thinking about doing some exercise, you just do it, and then you'll think better about exercise. (laughs) Great. Simple. Thank you. Part of your role is out there presenting. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, just before presenting to an audience, what are some ways that you would prepare to be totally present for that audience, attitudinally, if you like? Uh, It's a great question. Um, I'm a firm believer that when you have a chat, it's never about you. It's always about the people that are listening to you chat. Mm -hmm. So I have two things. One, if I'm with a a smaller group, um, I'm always there obviously half an hour early, and I pick between the number of names I can remember. So I pick between 5 to 12 names. So I introduce myself personally to between 5 to 12 people. Mm -hmm. The question I ask is, tell me about you. So I find out about that person. What's your name? Tell me about you. And then I ask them what they would like to get out of today's chat. Mm. So you came here for a reason. What would you like to get out of today's presentation out of the chat? Then you have, and I, I pick those 5 to 12 people sparingly throughout the room. So now I have little lighthouses because I know their name. I know a little bit about them, whether they've got children or pets or where they work or what they do. And I also know why they're there. Mm. So now I have this group of people who I can who I love and who already love me because I've been interested in them. And that then keeps you really focused on making sure that at least those 5 to 12 people leave with something really special Mm. related to them. 
Great. Mm. And I'm sure invariably the other people leave with something special relating to them. Well, exactly <laughs> right. But, um, and as you and I have chatted about before, it's always about if you can make the... D- as a speaker, one of the challenges I have, it's always about um, with this big group of people. But it's not about the group. The group is individual people. Mm. And if just one person can walk away with something from you that will make something different, special, positive, happy happen in their life because they came in contact with you, then it's been a wow experience. Mm. And obviously, selfishly for you as the person that's had the chat, because you've got the opportunity to make that difference. Mm. So it's almost like a bit of an attitude transfer as well, isn't it, where you're transferring who you are and your message and getting them to take some action. Well, the, and that's my philosophy for the only. And my father was a preacher, and he said, first of all, if you can't stand up and speak without notes, sit down and shut up. <laughs> um, which I thought was great advice. Um, and the second one is, it's never about you. It's always about what you can share with somebody else. Mm-hmm. If you're speaking for you, you're selfish, and you shouldn't be speaking. Okay. <laughs> now, you know, they say that success leaves clues. I love that, mm. love that saying. And if I was to observe your life for a while, be a fly in the wall in your life, what are some of the routines that I'd see around mental fitness? And some of them you mentioned. Is there anything outside of that? Um, I know you're a, a voracious reader. Mm-hmm. What else do you do as far as feeding that mental attitude? Again, it's a system and it's a daily system. Um, I think when you say success leaves clues, uh, the only clue I believe the difference between a successful person and an unsuccessful person is the word discipline. Mm. And my definition of discipline is doing what you know you should do at the time you should do it, even if you don't feel like it. So I have a, a, and I only have five things, but I have a list of things that I would never not go to bed without doing them. Right. So, and for some people that's brushing their teeth, you know, you wouldn't go to bed without brushing your mm. teeth. For me, I cannot go to bed at night unless I've done an hour of personal or professional development. If I get home at three o'clock in the morning, I will still do an hour of personal or professional development because it, for me, that would be the same as going to bed without brushing my teeth. And I couldn't do that. I'd wake up in the morning feeling terrible. Right. So my personal professional reading, listening, development, my exercise, my healthy eating plan, that that's called discipline. Mm. And are there days when I don't feel like it? Of course. Are there days that I don't want to run on the treadmill? Of course. But to me, that's the difference between successful and unsuccessful. The unsuccessful person says, I'm tired, I'm busy, I don't feel like it. Whereas the disciplined person says, I will do it regardless. Mm. You've talked a lot about what it is that you do and you have a list. Are there some things in order to achieve higher mental fitness, what are some things that we should be leaving out of our routine without being too prescriptive? That's an awesome question. Again, this is only from my personal experience. Um, What I leave out of my life is negative people. Mm. Yes, you need to have contact with negative people for your professional and personal growth. (laughs) However, I have them in my life for a very short period of time and I shake them off when they go and I have no, no further contact. So, um, you know, the time that you invest 
in people. You have so little time. So when if you're going to invest time in people, it has to be positive investment. And if you didn't pull something positive out of that, because the person's a gossip or they criticise other people or they... I just can't stand negativity and I won't put up with it. Some people call me, what's that lady's name, Pollyanna? Yeah. You know, you can't be happy all the time. Well, my choice is I can be. Because mm. regardless of what's happening around me, of course bad things are going to happen and ugly things happen and people get sick and you get injured and however you look at it from a positive point of view we chatted about that this morning mm. you can go and listen to another speaker and you can say oh they were terrible or you can say what a great experience I've just had I can now learn what not to do mm. so it was a wow experience anyway so my suggestion is leave out all negativity because it's just a waste of time <laughs> Is there one thing that you would love to share that you haven't already shared with our listeners? Yes, it's from my, thank you again for the question, it's from my um, my number one philosophy in my business is to positively change the health and fitness of the world. Mm -hmm. And I have an apology because I'm from the fitness industry. Um, I've been doing this since I was 13 and I'm now 41, so I've been doing it a long time. And what we've done in our industry is we've made health and fitness and mental health and fitness too complicated. Right. Um, as I shared with my students today, if we could get the general public, all of us, to do four simple things, and I'm going to make it five. The first one is smile, because your brain doesn't know the difference between a, a real smile or a fake one. The more you smile, the better you feel. If you moved more, ate less, ate more fruit and vegetables and drank more water, you'd feel fantastic. And that's so uncomplicated. Yeah. And if we all did that, we would, be, we would feel so much better, which means we would achieve so much more. Yeah. And, of course, that impacts on our attitude. Absolutely. Great. Well, Rowena, thank you very much for sharing your passion with us today. And he's hoping that our listeners put some of these things into practice. Thank you very much and all the best. My pleasure. This month on VOE, Dr. NSA shares his experiences of dealing with the blue blood in the speaking industry. Lovely to have you back, Dr. NSA. Who have you heard from this month? Well, lovely to be here again, uh, Camille, and I, I am enjoying Voices of Experience. I prescribe it to my students here at Oxbridge in the professional speaking degree program, and uh, they really do enjoy it. Uh, they do think the title is a bit uh, a bit like your conscience talking to Voices of Experience, or maybe mum and dad, um, or grandma or grandpapa. Um, but nonetheless, I, I suppose that's right. We're the voices of experience, you and I, and, and myriad and sundry others, Camille. Um, and remarkably, this month, I've heard from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who um, has only been uh, schooled uh, at home, as it were, if one could call the palace a home. And she's decided, uh, octogenarian uh, that she is, uh, to embrace new learning. And, and so she comes uh, to weekly classes and uh, the occasional monthly tutorial here at Oxbridge and, and sits in and she really does know an awful lot of, of trivia um, and, and um, you know, quite a lot of uh, substantive and substantial things as well, but not really much about public speaking. You see, the thing is, she's never really had to um, be anything other than commanding uh, to command an audience. And really, um, if she were 
just to be introduced as, uh, for instance, Mrs. Lizzie Windsor, um, I, I think she'd be hard-pressed to uh, get the audience's attention. And she's uh, discovered humility in, in, in her later years, and bravo for that, very good, and so on. Um, and, uh, and she really does want to go out and do a community hall type uh, uh, discussions and uh, get a real feel for her people. Uh, so, so we are helping her with, with breathing um, and with projection and uh, with putting the odd bit of, of humor uh, into her presentations, uh, which is really quite good. I'm, I'm very pleased about it. You must be uh, very excited to have the Queen on board. So excited to have the Queen on board. Um, and I'm hoping for a testimonial, though I doubt that anyone will believe it, um, but at least because of its actual veracity, we're unlikely to be successfully sued. Uh, so people can take it with a, a pinch of salt or, or uh, a twinkle in their eye or, or just the general incredulity that one has uh, when the royal family uh, comes up as a topic of conversation. She does, of course, pay tuition, and, and her checks haven't bounced so far. Um, and it's jolly good. Who knows? I may get an OBE out of it. <laughs> How would that be? Fantastic, Dr. NSA. Well, that's very exciting. We look forward to talking to you next month about some other, perhaps, famous professional speakers that come your way. Thank you, Camille. On Take 10 with Camille... I had in the hot seat certified speaking professional and past International Federation President Paul Bridal, whom I feel truly embodies our theme this year of authenticity and keeping it real. I'm here with certified speaking professional Paul Bridal, who's actually 10,600 miles away. What's it like in your side of the world, Paul? Today, it's, uh, I'm based in UK at the moment, and it's really, really cold. <laughs> well, you can come to Australia for summer anytime. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be there. <laughs> Welcome, Paul, to VOE. Thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Camille. Lovely to speak to you. So, straight off, your definition <laughs> of success? Uh, being able to enjoy what I'm doing. I made a promise to myself many years ago that um, I would do what I do as long as I enjoyed it. In the moment I didn't enjoy it anymore, I'd stop doing it. And uh, so at this moment, um, you know, success to me really is uh, doing what I enjoy and being as good as I can be at it and challenging myself to be as good as I can be at it. That's excellent. And I guess when you're happy, you're healthy, and, and things go the right way, don't they? That's right. It all, it all works together, as we know. Yes. So, uh, so yeah. Mm. All right. A book or a resource that perhaps has been valuable to you in your business? Wow. That's a, that's a heck of a question. There's two things that really influenced me in my life. I read The Fountainhead at a, quite a young age, and it's the story of a man who has very high ethics, that really did appeal to me as somebody who has very high ethics and you know stands for something and and won't waver on that so that had a huge impact on me and still does in business to today and in my dealings with people to today and the second thing that had a huge impact was Rudyard Kipling's poem if which again I found when I was a in my mid-teens 
and I learnt it off by heart and has been something that I've read and reread many, many times a year over the years. So it's probably those two things have influenced me the most. How about a marketing and, tip you could share with us? You know, I'm doing this for as many years as I have now. i am never ceased to amaze at how much there still is to learn in this field of marketing. But if I was to give anybody a tip at this stage, it would be what I would call the 20% rule. Put 20% of your time and 20% of your money into marketing. I can always remember when I first started, I had... I'd only been doing it for a couple of years, and I had the most amazing year. I mean, I earned so much money, I didn't know what to do with it. And suddenly it came to an end. And because I had so much work coming in and everything, I had not bothered marketing myself. And then one month I suddenly realized, hang on, there's no business. And that was a very salutary lesson. And so I would say 20% of your time, 20% of your budget, 20% uh, of your earnings, whatever it is, I'm fortunate I have a team who do marketing for me and promote me, but that still takes my time and my money and everything else. So that would be my tip. I don't give up on it. And a great lesson. All right. Well, while we're on the topic of tips, what about a platform tip that works for you? One of the tips I picked up a long time ago was before I walk on stage, as I think we all do, we, you know, we, we, we have those few moments to ourselves where we're just preparing our mind to walk on stage. And I always ask myself this question. If this client was going to pay me twice what they are currently paying me, how much better would I be for being paid twice as much money? So whatever they're paying me, I just double it in my mind and say that's the performance I'm going to give. And that generally over the years has always made me walk on to the platform with the highest mindset I could set for myself that day. Wow. And and shoulders up and head up and that just... Yes. Yes, that just comes across to me as even a um, very empowering thought. So that's fantastic. Yeah. 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 All right. In your business, what keeps you awake, if anything, at night? How I'm going to do my business differently next year. I keep challenging myself with questions to consider... Yeah, if, if we're going to do this business differently, what would we do? How am I going to do it better next year? What am I going to bring to the table next year that's going to make it even better than it was this year or last year? That's fantastic questions to be asking of yourself and, and of your business because it really forces us to take a good look at what we're doing, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, excellent. All right. In hindsight, then, what do you wish someone had told you about the business before you started? I can tell you that straight off. It took I, I wasted 10 years in this business. People said to me, you are the brand, and I refused to accept that. And I said, no, it's not about me. It's about what I deliver. And I refused to use my name. I had a company. When we used the company name, uh, and I didn't want my name being out there, being pushed. And, and I wasted 10 years. I Finally, after being told it 100 times over those 10 years that you are the brand it must be you you are the, the are what makes it i finally gave up and said okay if i'm the brand make me the brand let's go from there and business has never looked back ever since very interesting 10 years hey <laughs> i think i wasted 10 years yeah well so. okay well so going forward now what do you see as the biggest challenge for speakers in the future 
The biggest challenge I see for any speaker these days is understanding the client. I find a lot of speakers are still wrapped up in themselves, and a lot of speakers tell me what they won't do. Uh, they, you know, I won't do this. I won't do that. Uh, you know, and yeah, I'm not going to allow myself to be recorded, and I'm not going to allow this, and I'm only going to do that, and I'm not going to. That absolutely amazes me in this day and age. We have to be able to understand our clients, and it has to be a relationship business, and we have to be able to get as close to our clients as it's possible to get to our clients. And the challenge is, is how we're going to do that and do that better than we've ever done it before. Because that's, you know, the future is going to be very, very rocky. And that's not just because there's a recession looming and there's, you know, a crisis in the world and all that sort of thing. It's simply because the clients are going to get more and more demanding and are going to expect more and more from us. And I just don't see speakers getting their head around that fast enough. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just talking to the wrong people. But that's that's one of the things that really bothers me about, about speakers. Thank you very much, Paul, for sharing your thoughts with us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Next up, we have two next gen nichers talking about, surprise, next gen. This is Graham Codrington for VOE Next Gen Segment and today I'm speaking to an Australian, Peter Sheehan, on the issue of Generation Y. I spent most of the first four years working for myself, speaking in high schools, talking to teenagers about how do you make the successful transition from education to work. And it was, you know, it sounds natural, it didn't feel that natural at the time, but there was a bit of interest around uh, at the opposite end, so teachers, educators, parents and then eventually businesses started asking well rather than telling them about us can you tell us a little bit about them well you've obviously got insights then as you say coming from working with this next gen as as we're calling it in the segment who is the generation y i know you've done a lot of work in australia but you've also done work around the world is it a global phenomenon a new generation how would you define them well, firstly, I'm actually based in LA these days, even though I uh, spent a lot of time in Australia and, and, a, and a lot of time in Asia as well. But the answer to your question is yes, it's definitely a global phenomenon, although that doesn't mean that Gen Y in Britain are the same as Gen Y in France or Gen Y on mainland China or the US for that matter. But the concept of a, a real shift taking place that has a generational component to it, I think that's real across economies all around the world. The key is not to get too caught up in it, Graham, to tell you the truth. It's a shortcut way to look at major social change. But whether you define Gen Y as 1978 to 1994, which is generally the definition I use, and it's based on birth rates in, in North America, or whether you define them as the millennials, which are those that graduate from high school in the new millennium, which means those born from about 1982 to 2000, or whether you just take a slight variation on either of those, you're ultimately talking about people under the age of 30 who have got a new set of expectations about what the world of work should be like. And this is where the, you know, the real insight needs to be garnered. The human needs of Gen Y are exactly the same as the human needs of the generations that preceded them. It's one, how they define whether those needs get met 
Uh, and two, what they'll do if they feel like those needs are not getting met, that sort of changes the game a little bit. So, for instance, I was talking to someone in Miami recently, and he said when he got his first job, if his boss looked at him in the elevator, he felt respect. He said today, if he doesn't invite you know, some of his young staff out onto the yacht, introduce them to his daughters and, you know, maybe invite them to be part of the family. He says they don't feel the love. So it's not that respect isn't something we all want, it's whether we feel like it gets met. In other words, the way we define whether those needs get met. Are, are you finding that this younger generation is, is perceived as being more demanding by their employers? Oh, I think it's beyond perceived. I think at this point, there are a few people that would disagree. I mean, I, you know, we we had eighty thousand people in our research database for a, for a number of years. All of that kind of qual research suggests that they did. And then anecdotally, you only have to look at clients and the demand that has kind of surrounded this issue to say, yeah, there is a different set of demands. But you've got to remember that you only get away with that demand if the labour market has shifted the power in favour of the candidate. And ultimately, the real interest over the last five years in this has been because of skills shortages across most of both the developed and developing world. I mean, China, no one believes this, but China has one of the greatest skills shortages on the planet. The US is the same. I mean, the skills shortages in the UK are phenomenal and, and shouldn't be news to anyone in that market either. So you got to remember that it, it, you can't treat this in isolation. You have uh, psychographic changes in definitions of human needs happening at the same time that you have an extremely tight labour market making that candidate extremely powerful. And then at another level, you've got uh, this group being in smaller families with greater affluence, so they've got a huge amount of buying power, not to mention trend-based influence. So you have these kind of three or four things happening simultaneously that are making this group interesting. What's going to be fascinating is what the, the global recession, quote-unquote, is going to do to this area. I think you're going to find companies, one, are still interested in the generation, but more from a customer perspective. Uh, and that two, even though sort of macro supply and demand equation has changed, companies are going to need highly productive, highly innovative staff. And I think younger people present some interesting you know, perspectives and some interesting opportunities for companies. So I'd like to think they'll stay interested in this issue. To be honest, there's been so much hype around this issue that's that's wrong. I mean, I could count on two hands the quality commentators in this space in the world, but I couldn't count with an Excel spreadsheet how many people want to kind of contribute to the debate. And I think too many things are being put in, particularly from a media perspective, as Gen Y issues or millennial issues that, you know, let's be frank, are crap. I mean, they're not Gen Y issues. They are human resource issues or they are labor market issues or they are... Or they're you know, just lazy, lazy young people issues, actually. Yeah, yeah. And that's been around for two millennia. So... You know, let's let's you got to you got to take take it with a grain of salt and just be careful what commentary you you kind of buy into. Well, let's then focus our, our attention briefly on the implications for professional speakers. Uh, you know, we've got Gen Y people in our audience. We'll increasingly have them as decision makers around conferences, and uh, many of us will be employing them. Uh, what would you say a professional speaker has to consider when thinking about the next gen? Well, let's consider it in two parts. Number one, the next generation of audience, and number two, an evolving existing generation of audiences. So the human potential movement of the 60s and the 70s, that really gave birth to the paid speaking profession in terms of, you know, at some level of critical mass. I think we've evolved through that 
experience. I think audiences are starting to be much more savvy around who they let contribute to, comment on, impact their thoughts. And I cannot tell you how many clients that, that I, I meet who are so sick of the pop, the can and go mentality. I mean, I, I think as a profession, we, we really need to raise the bar. I think we've done a great job at raising the bar in terms of quality of stage mechanics, like how good are we on the platform? But we still don't do enough to go, well, let's take my message, my idea, and me being whoever the speaker is, and go, what does that mean for company X? And I think you'll find, not just with the younger decision makers and the younger audience, but I think you'll increasingly find it with all your audiences and all your clients, they're getting more demanding. I think Gen Y has grown up in a school environment right the way through from the beginning education all around the world where they are used to a lot more interaction with the teacher. They're used to co-creating some of the content. And, and this is being brought into the conferencing space. So they are demanding speakers be a lot more open to communication rather than just stand on stage, deliver and disappear. I think as they come in as speakers, they will be changing that market for us as well, creating a new standard that the rest of us have to lead up. Yeah, well, and that's the second part, right? You, the word co-creation is a, a pretty interesting idea. You know, I, I, let me just personal example, right? I demand from all production teams that I get full house lights regardless of the show. I don't care if there's 5,000 people in the audience because I want to get out in the audience and see what's going on. And they go, but you've only got a 60-minute talk. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, I've got a conference coming up where they're demanding the PowerPoint presentation 30 days before. I'm like, I don't even know if I'll have a PowerPoint presentation. That takes a different kind of style of delivery and a different willingness to be at risk to the audience. I think it's going to become essential because think about Gen Y, right? Look at where all they spend all their time online, Facebook, MySpace, Wikipedia, uh, eBay, these all these websites, these Web 2.0, if you want to use that language, these social sort of environments in, on the web, they are all multi-way conversations. They're not websites with lots of information in a monologue. They're much more of a dialogue. And I would use that metaphor to describe what I think the future of our profession is. Now, I think we as speakers have a, a major responsibility to also educate meeting planners around this stuff. So, you know, I've done a bit of work, particularly in the US, with the convention managers, associations, etc., talking about how might conferences change. And, you know, you look at the, the, the power of the IBM Innovation Jam, which is pretty old as a concept now, but how do you take that idea of multi-contributors to a learning space? How do you do that at a conference? You know, I know a pharmaceutical company that, that, that I did some work with who designed a program that was built around open learning, where it was facilitated rather than delivered. They had less speakers having longer with more interaction rather than completely scripted tap dance after tap dance. Now that's hard to do with 7,000 people. That's what some Gen Y speakers are beginning to experiment with. Finally, just if we as speakers are gonna be connecting with Gen Y people in our companies or working with them ourselves, any suggestions that you can give us to get the most out of them? Yeah, take our own advice. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like teacher, teach thyself, physician, heal thyself, right? It's like, we, you know, we're all up there on stage going, people are your greatest asset, take care of them, build relationships, go out of your way, make space in your diary. We've got to do the same thing. I mean, it is so hard as a professional speaker because we're in the business of personal exertion. We're, you know, we're high paid, sure, 
But at the end of the day, we're selling time. We're selling our presence. We're selling our energy. And you can put all your value-based language around that, but at the end of the day, you have a keynote fee. That suggests to me that you're selling time, right? So we're always away from the office. We're always out there doing the work. And if we're not, we're not making any money, so why would we need any staff? So I found personally, my only, you know, my only insight into this is that if you've got a big enough practice or successful enough practice, you might need to put someone in the role of managing your support staff. If you're not that big and you're talking two or three staff working for you, you need to structure into your, your week, whether it be through Skype, like we're having this chat now, Graham, using a video hookup, but you need to have some discipline around connecting with building relationships and appropriately delegating. Because the other thing that comes with being someone who believes that they've got something valuable to share to the world is that we generally think we know everything, right? I mean, it's part of the speaker way, right? So. At the end of the day, we, you know, if we took half our own advice around building relationships, making space to connect with these people, properly delegating, supporting them, sitting with them rather than dishing work out to them. We're going to do, we're going to do a pretty good job of, of, of attracting good young staff. I have in, also had a crack in my own organisation at, at incentive-based opportunities with a decent base salary as well, and sometimes they've worked, sometimes they haven't worked. I think relationships ultimately will underpin it. Skype call with speaker and author Steve Shapiro. It was Friday, nearing happy hour in Boston where he resides. For me, early Saturday morning and only a few sips into my first cuppa. I let him do most of the talking on product and innovation. Or was it innovating product? Oh, I'll let you decide. Welcome to Voices of Experience. That's my pleasure to be here. Tell me, you are the innovation guru. What's the big deal about innovation in business? What can you tell us that uh, might help us? Well, contrary to popular belief, innovation isn't just about uh, new products or new ideas. Right now, with the economy the way it is, it, it is as much about surviving. And I'm finding that there's an interesting shift in the way that industries and companies are innovating as a result of the economy, which directly affects every industry, including the speaking industry. That's right. So, I mean, as an example, one of the things which I've been looking at is the traditional innovation model has always been uh, what we call the bell curve, which is we want to talk to our customers, the people who are core, sort of the middle of that, that bell curve. And we tend to ignore the people on the left who don't have a lot of money to afford us. And we tend to ignore the people on the right because they're just a little too advanced for us or maybe we're not up to their speed. So we focus on that middle. Uh, but what's, what's shifted in the marketplace is the middle is getting squished and it is actually the value brands and the premium brands that are excelling right now. And this has some pretty profound implications for the speaking world because what I'm seeing pretty consistently across the board in every industry, including speaking, is that the middle is eroding. And what that does, let me give you a very simple example. For me as an innovation speaker, on the right-hand side of the curve, which is sort of the really advanced high-end celebrity speakers, these are people who are still in demand because they're extremely well-known and they're going to get butts in seats for these large events. On the left-hand side of the bell curve, my competition now are the IBMs of the world who not only charge nothing, they're willing to pay an event organizer to be on the stage and they will pay sponsorship money. So what's happening is the the NSA speaker, who is the person who's traditionally in the middle, is getting squished. 
Ouch. And it is, it's a really tough place to be, and it's happening in every single industry, not just us. So the question then is, how do you move to either side of the bell curve? How do you either move yourself and create value for less money, make yourself more affordable and more accessible? Fascinating. So what's next? Well, that's a great question, and I've been looking at it myself, and there's a couple things that I'm seeing. One thing is, and this is a hypothesis that I have, is that companies are now hiring uh, the, the content, not the speaker as much, because they want the results, not as much as they want the person. So we've always been told in NSA that you want to create yourself as the brand. Well, I'm still creating my Steve Shapiro brand, but at the same time, I'm creating a company brand all around innovation that's somewhat independent of my personality. And then in conjunction with that, I've been creating a product, but not the traditional NSA product, but I'm creating product that will allow people to take the experience of me home. That is, instead of having to pay me a large sum of money to have me speak at an event, they can actually buy this product and simulate that experience in their environment for a fraction of the cost. You're doing a Madonna, in other words. <laughs> Reinventing yourself, which is an expression that I've been using lately. All right, so you're speaking about um, product at convention. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. This is, this is just a lot of fun, too. Uh, what I've created is something that is a product that I use during my speech. So if you think about the typical product, it's, it's CDs, it's DVDs, it's books, but you can't actually experience that. You can't experience a book. It's not something that you can play with. Well, what I've developed is something called personality poker. And what personality poker is, is every person who comes to one of my events gets five random cards from a specially designed deck of poker cards. These look like regular poker cards, 52 cards with the suits and the numbers on them. The only difference is they have words written across the face of them that describe particular personality traits and personality styles. Uh -huh. So everybody gets five cards, and we go through a process of having people trade the cards in order to get five cards that best represent their personality style. And when we're done with that process... And I've done this with a thousand people at Disney World. So this is not something you'd have to do with 30 people. I can do with any size audience. And we get the energy level really high in the group. And once people have their perfect hand, they sit down. I continue with my speech. I will tell them what the different styles mean. And I'll still engage and interact with the audience. And people love it. And here is what is the best part of it. Every person in the audience leaves my speech, leaves that event with five cards with my branding on it. On the back are my contact details. Lovely. <laughs> and so what happens is people come to the event and next thing you know, they're buying cards. So of course, and that also works for the rest of the event because they've got your cards and they're talking about it. So you've created quite a buzz throughout the event as well, not just your own presentation. Interesting. Now, you don't think that working with personalities, per se, is boxing people in, is it? No, not at all. Not at all. I think the, the whole objective of this thing, to me, is as much as anything is to engage a high level of energy into an audience to encourage a conversation. And that conversation then will carry on beyond the event. People take their cards, they put it on their desk, but it doesn't box people in. It's just basically an expression of, it's, it's a catalyst for more conversation. People always want to learn more about themselves. So that's part of the fun as well, I'm sure. 
Absolutely, and it has very practical implications for how companies organize their teams, how they develop new innovative ideas, which is really how the whole process started. And Steve, you've also got a book that you've self-published, The Little Book of Big Innovation Ideas, and apparently that's gone gangbusters as well. Tell us a bit about that product. Well, that one interestingly just started off as a opportunity for me to write everything that I knew about innovation. I just wanted to write a bunch of tips. So it started off as just a Word document, and it blew up into this book of 75 tips on how to create a culture of innovation. I once sent this Word document to a client who had hired me to do a speech. She's like, this is brilliant. Uh, how do we get copies? So I was, didn't really think about that, but we turned it into a book. And, and here's the thing which I find is really fascinating is when I send a client this book, after they hire me, I'll have them read the 75 tips. And I will ask them which of those tips resonate with you and will resonate with your audience. This has them do a lot of the homework for me because they're able to tell me right away which what are the modules of my speeches that are going to be best fit for the audience. The other thing that this does is they read it, they love it, and inevitably they ask, how do I buy copies for everybody? And I've done this in such a way that they're small print runs, print on demand. Each book costs about two and a half dollars each. And I am able to customize the inside and the outside if I want with a message from the CEO and a logo of my client company. So it is a great gift for the audience members. I basically sell this only as a drop ship to my clients who hire me to speak. Excellent. Well, no wonder we've got you speaking on product at a conference in Phoenix. We're looking forward to having you there. You registered for the 2009 NSA convention, which will be held at the JW Marriott Desert Ridge Resort and Spa in Phoenix, Arizona on July 18th through July 21st? Visit www.nsaconvention.org for details and to register today. From where I stand on the platform, I've noticed, as I'm sure you have, that the most profound changes come when people are stirred emotionally. Sure, our culture as speakers relies on the spoken word, but when you use your body language, shift happens. I felt this recently when a friend and I enjoyed a performance of four female jazz singers. The quartet, harmonizing together, were fun and lively. Individually, each delivered in their unique style, but one truly stood out. When I lifted my arm to show my hair-raising reaction to my friend, she agreed. This lady wasn't just singing, but truly believing and embodying the words, stirring us emotionally through her display of physical expression, body movement and gestures. And you know, I haven't stopped talking about it. Certified speaking professional Patricia Fripp suggests we go to the movies to learn to create energy levels to connect and involve our audience. Improv and acting classes can also teach us these skills. Either way, it's fun professional development, tax deductible, and hopefully your audience will be talking about you long after your program. May you be inspired to try something new this month. The BOE team thanks you for listening. This is Camille Valvo reminding you to keep it real. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.